Chapter Ten of Harrington by Maria Edgeworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jenny Bradshaw. Chapter Ten. The interest which Berenice inspired so completely absorbed my mind that I never thought again of Jacob and his story till I met Lady Anne and her brother the next morning when I went to take a ride in the park. They were with Colonel Topham and some people of her ladyship's acquaintance. Lady Anne, after the usual preliminary quantity of nonsense, and after she had questioned and cross-questioned me, to the best of her slender abilities about the Jewess, told me a long story about herself and her fears, and the fears of her mare, and the hoarse laugh of Mowbray's which Colonel Topham said no horse could stand. Not much applause ensuing from me, she returned to the witty Colonel, and left me to her brother. Mowbray directly began to talk about Jacob. He said he supposed Jacob had not failed to make his Gibraltar story good, but that here both sides was an indispensable maxim, even where such a favourite as Jacob was concerned. "'But first let us take one other good gallop,' said Mowbray, "'and I leave you here with Mrs. Carroll and Colonel Topham.' And away he galloped. When he thought, as he said, that he had shaken off some of my prejudices, he drew up his horse and talked over the Gibraltar affair." His dashing, jocular, military mode of telling the thing, so different from Jacob's plain, mercantile, matter-of-fact method, quite changed my view and opinion of the transaction. Mowbray blamed himself with such a good grace, and wished so fervently that he could make any reparation to the poor devils who had suffered, that I acquitted him of all malice, and forgave his imprudence. The frankness with which he spoke to Jacob, when they met, was proof conclusive to me that he was incapable, as he declared, of harbouring any malice against Jew or Christian. He inquired most particularly into Jacob's own losses at Gibraltar, called for pen, ink, and paper, and in his off-hand manner wrote a draft on his banker and put it into Jacob's hand. Here, my honest Jacob, you are a Jew whose accounts I can take at your word. Let this settle the balance between us. No scruples, Jacob, no present this, nothing but remuneration for your losses. Jacob accepted Lord Mowbray's apologies, but could not by any means be prevailed upon to accept from him any present or remuneration. He seemed willing to forgive, but not to trust Lord Mowbray. All trace of resentment was cleared from his countenance, but no condescension of his lordship could move Jacob to throw off his reserve beyond a certain point. He conquered aversion, but he would not pretend to like. Mr. Montenero came into the room while we were speaking, and I presented Lord Mowbray to him. There was as marked a difference as politeness would allow in Mr. Montenero's manner towards his lordship and towards me, which I justly attributed to Jacob's previous representations. We looked at the pictures, and talked and loitered, but I turned my eyes in vain to the door every time it opened. No Miss Montenero appeared. I was so much preoccupied with my object that I was silent, and left Mowbray to make his own way, which no one was more capable of doing. In a few minutes he was in full conversation. He went over it again, without my attending to it, his piece justificative about the riot at Gibraltar, and Jacob and the Manessas, and between the fits of my reverie I perceived Mowbray was talking of the Duc de Crillon, and General Elliot, and Red Hot Balls, but I took no interest in the conversation till I heard him speak of an officer's ball at Gibraltar, and of dancing with a Jewess. The very night he had first landed at Gibraltar, there happened to be a ball to which he went with a friend, who was also just landed and a stranger. It was the custom to draw lots for partners. His friend, a true-born Englishman, took fright at the foreign-sounding name of the lady who fell to his lot. Mowbray changed tickets with him, and had, he said, great reason to rejoice, 
The lady with the foreign name was a Jewess, the handsomest, the most graceful, the most agreeable woman in the room. He was the envy of every man, and especially of his poor friend, who too late repented his rash renunciation of his ticket. Lord Mowbray, by several other slight anecdotes, which he introduced with happy effect, contrived to please Mr. Montenero, and if any unfavourable prepossession had existed against him, it was, I thought, completely removed. For my own part I was delighted with his presence of mind in recollecting all that was best worth seeing in London, and arranging parties in which we could have the honour of attending Miss Montenero, and the pleasure of being of some use to her. Mr. Montenero's own acquaintance in London was chiefly with the families of some of the foreign ambassadors, and with other foreigners of distinction, but his daughter was not yet acquainted with any English ladies, except the lady of General B., with whom the Montaneros had been intimate in America. Lady Emily B. was detained in the country by the illness of one of her family, and Miss Montenero, having declined going into public with Mrs. Coates, would wait quietly at home till her English friends should come to town. Again shame for my mother's remissness obliged me to cast down my eyes in awkward silence. But Mowbray, heaven bless him for it, went on fluently. This was the moment, he said, before Miss Montenero should appear in public, and get into the whirl of the great world, before engagements should multiply and press upon her, as inevitably they would as soon as she had made her debut. This was the moment, and the only moment probably she would ever have to herself, to see all that was worth a stranger's notice in London. Mr. Montenero was obliged to Mowbray, and I am sure so was I. Miss Montenero, infinitely more desirous to see than to be seen, was pleased with the parties we arranged for her, and from this time forward scarcely a day passed without our having the pleasure of attending the father and daughter. My mother sighed and remonstrated in vain. My father, absorbed in the House of Commons, was satisfied with seeing me regularly at breakfast. He usually dined at clubs, and it was happily his principle to let his son amuse himself his own way but I assured her, and truly, that I was only amusing myself, and that I had not formed any serious intentions. I wished to see more of the lady. Mowbray, with ready invention, continually suggested something particularly well worth seeing or hearing, some delightful pretext for our being together. Sometimes he accompanied us, sometimes he excused himself, he had indispensable engagements. His indispensable engagements, I knew, were usually with ladies of a very different sort from Miss Montenero. Mowbray was desperately in love with the young actress who had played the part of Jessica, and to her he devoted every moment he could command. I regretted for his sake his dissipated tastes, but I felt the more obliged to him for the time he sacrificed to friendship, and perhaps to tell things just as they were, I was glad he was safely in love with a Jessica of his own, as it secured me from all apprehension of his rivalling or wishing to rival me. Miss Montenero, he confessed, was not in the least to his taste— in this instance I was quite satisfied that our tastes should completely differ. I never liked him so well. We went on most happily together. I felt uncommonly benevolent towards the whole world. My heart expanded with increased affection for all my friends. Everything seemed to smile upon me, even the weather. The most delicious morning I ever remember was that on which we rode along the banks of the Thames with Miss Montenero. I always enjoyed every beautiful object in nature with enthusiasm, but now with new delight— with all the enchantment of a first love, and of hope that had never known disappointment. I was almost angry with my dear friend Mowbray for not being as enthusiastic this day as I was myself. There were certain points of taste and character on which we never could agree. My romantic imagination and enthusiastic manner of expressing myself were often in contrast with his worldly comic mode of seeing and talking. 
He hurt sometimes my feelings by his raillery. He pulled me down too suddenly from my flights of imagination. By the flashes of his wit he showed, perhaps too clearly, the danger of my fall from high sublime to deep absurd. But after all I was satisfied that Miss Montanari preferred my style, and in general I was content that he should enjoy his dear wit and gay rhetoric, even a little at my expense. The morning we went to Westminster Abbey, I own I was provoked with him, for pointing out to my observation, at the moment when my imagination was struck with the sense of sublimity at the sight of the awful pile, the ridiculous contrast of the showman and his keys, who was impatiently waiting till I had finished my exclamations. But I soon forgot both the showman and the wit, while at every step, among the illustrious dead, my enthusiasm was raised, and some anecdote of their lives, or some striking quotation from their works, rushed upon my mind. I was inspired and encouraged by the approbation of the father and the sympathy of the daughter. As we were quitting the abbey, Mr. Montenero stopped, turned to me, and said, "'You have a great deal of enthusiasm, I see, Mr. Harrington. So much the better, in my opinion. I love generous enthusiasm.' And at the moment I flattered myself that the eyes of his daughter repeated, "'I love generous enthusiasm.' Her father caught the expression, and immediately, with his usual care, moderated and limited what he had said." enthusiasm well governed of course i mean as one of your english noblemen lately said there is an enthusiasm of the head and that is genius there is an enthusiasm of the heart and that is virtue there is an enthusiasm of the temper and that is miss montenero looked uneasy and her father perceiving this checked himself again and changing his tone added but with all its dangers and errors enthusiasm in either man or woman is more amiable and respectable than selfishness enthusiasm is not the vice of young men or women of the present day certainly not said mowbray who was now very attentive to everything that passed i forgave him the witticisms with which he had crossed my humour this morning for the kind sympathy he showed with the pleasure i felt at this moment afterwards when mowbray and i were alone together and compared notes as we were in the habit of doing upon all that had been said and had been looked during the day mowbray congratulated me upon the impression i had made by my eloquence Enthusiasm, you see, is the thing both with father and daughter. You succeed in that line. Follow it up. I was incapable of affecting enthusiasm, or of acting any part to show myself off. Yet Mowbray's opinion and my own observations, coinciding unconsciously and involuntarily, I afterwards became more at my ease in yielding to my natural feelings and habitual expressions. Miss Montenero had not yet seen the tower, and Mowbray engaged himself to be of our party but at the same time he privately begged me to keep it a dead secret from his sister. Lady Anne, he said, would never cease to ridicule him, if she were to hear of his going to the tower, after having been too lazy to go with her, and all the fashionable world, the night before, to the Fantoccini. Though I had lived in London half my childhood, my nervous disease had prevented my being taken to see even the sights that children are usually shown, and since my late arrival in town, when I had been my own master, engagements and emotions had pressed upon me too fast to leave time or inclination to think of such things. My object, of course, was now merely to have the pleasure of accompanying Berenice. I was unexpectedly struck on entering the armoury at the tower. The walls, three hundred feet in length, covered with arms for two hundred thousand men, burnished arms glittering in fancy figures on the walls, and ranged in endless piles from the ceiling to the floor of that long gallery. Then the apartment with the line of ancient kings, clad in complete armour, mounted on their steeds fully caparisoned, the death-like stiffness of the figures, the stillness, the silence of the place, altogether all the imagination, 
and carry the memory back to the days of chivalry. When among these forms of kings and heroes who had ceased to be, I beheld the black prince, lance couched, visor down, with the arms he wore at Cressy and Poictiers, my enthusiasm knew no bounds. The black prince, from my childhood, had been the object of my idolatry. I kneeled, I am ashamed to confess it, to do homage to the empty armour. Mr. Montenero, past the age of romantic extravagance, could not sympathise with this enthusiasm, but he bore with it. We passed on to dark Gothic nooks of chambers, where my reverence for the beds on which kings had slept, and the tables at which kings had sat, much increased by my early associations formed of Brantefield Priory, was expressed with a vehemence which astonished Mr. Montenero, and I fear prevented him from hearing the answers to various inquiries upon which he, with better regulated judgment, was intent. An orator is the worst person to tell a plain fact, the very worst guide, as Mowbray observed, that a foreigner can have. Still, Mr. Montenero had patience with me, and supplied the allusions in my rhetoric, by what information he could pick up from the guide and from Mowbray, with whom from time to time he stopped to see and hear, after I had passed on with Berenice. To her quickness and sympathy I flattered myself that I was always intelligible. We came at last to the chamber where Clarence and the young princes had been murdered. Here, I am conscious, I was beyond measure exuberant in exclamations and in quotations from Shakespeare. Mr. Montenero came in just as I was ranting from Clarence's dream. Seize on him, furies, take him to your torments. With that, methought, a legion of foul fiends environed me and howled in mine ears. Such hideous cries that with the very noise I made I prevented poor Mr. Montenero from hearing the answer to some historic question he was asking. Berenice's eye warned me to lower my voice, and I believe I should have been quiet, but that unluckily Mowbray set me off in another direction, by reminding me of the tapestry chamber and Sir Jocelyn. I remember covering my face with both my hands and shuddering with horror. Mr. Montenero asked, What of the tapestry chamber? And immediately recollecting that I should not, to him and before his daughter, describe the Jew, who had committed a deed without a name, I with much embarrassment said, that it was nothing of any consequence, it was something I could not explain. I left it to Mowbray's superior presence of mind, and better address, to account for it, and I went on with Berenice. Whenever my imagination was warmed, verses poured in upon my memory, and often without much apparent connection with what went before. I recollected at this moment the passage in Akenside's Pleasures the Imagination, describing the early delight the imagination takes in horrors, the children closing round the village matron, who suspends the infant audience with her tales breathing astonishment, and I recited all I could recollect of evil spirits of the deathbed call, of him who robbed the widow and devoured the orphan's portion of unquiet souls, risen from the grave to ease the heavy guilt, of deeds in life concealed, of shapes that walk at dead of night and clank their chains and wave the torch of hell around the murderer's bed. Mowbray and Mr. Montenero, who had stayed behind us a few minutes, came up just as I was with much emphasis and gesticulation, waving the torch of hell. I am sure I must have been a most ridiculous figure. I saw Mowbray on the brink of laughter, but Mr. Montenero looked so grave that he fixed all my attention. I suddenly stopped. "'We were talking of the pleasures of imagination,' said Berenice to her father. "'Mr. Harrington is a great admirer of Akenside.' "'Is he?' replied Mr. Montenero coldly, and with a look of absence. "'But, my dear, we can have the pleasures of imagination another time. "'Here are some realities worthy of our present attention.' "'He then drew his daughter's arm within his. "'I followed, and all the time he was pointing out to her "'the patterns of the Spanish instruments of torture, 
with which her politic majesty queen elizabeth frightened her subjects into courage sufficient to repel all the invaders on board the invincible armada i stood silent pondering on what i might have said or done to displease him whom i was so anxious to please first i thought he suspected me of what i most detested the affectation of taste sensibility and enthusiasm Next, I fancied that Mowbray, in explaining about the tapestry chamber, Sir Jocelyn and the bastinado Jew, had said something that might have hurt Mr. Montenero's Jewish pride. From whichever of these causes his displeasure arose, it had the effect of completely sobering my spirits. My poetic fit was over. I did not even dare to speak to his daughter. During our drive home, Berenice, apropos to something which Mowbray had said, but which I did not hear, suggested to her father some lines of Akenside, which she knew he particularly admired, on the nature and power of the early association of ideas. Mr. Montenero, with all the warmth my heart could wish, praised the poetic genius, and the intimate and deep knowledge of the human mind displayed in this passage. His gravity gradually wore off, and I began to doubt whether the displeasure had ever existed. At night, before Mowbray and I parted, when we talked over the day, he assured me that he had said nothing that could make Mr. Montenero displeased with me or any living creature, that they had been discussing some point of English history on which old Montenero had posed him. As to my fears, Mowbray rallied me out of them effectually. He maintained that Montenero had not been at all displeased, and that I was a most absurd modern self-tormentor. Could not a man look grave for two minutes without my racking my fancy for two hours to find a cause for it? Perhaps the man had the toothache, possibly the headache, but why should I, therefore, insist upon having the heartache? End of chapter 10 Recording by Jenny Bradshaw